Welcome back. You know, I think about these other podcasts I listen to where they have like music intros, like these really cute music that fades in and fades out. And I don't know whether it's a specially created musical piece or they poached it from someplace else. And I think, how do they get their musical intros in? Do they get their CD player and they press play and hold the, the microphone up to the speaker? Or and then, of course, I realize that people don't really listen to CDs anymore. So can't really play it out of your iPod unless I guess you you put your iPod on a dock and then still hold the microphone up to your speaker. There's got to be another way, and I, I, you know what? I'm so technic technologically um, ill informed. I have no clue how they do those things. I don't know how to edit stuff. When I record these things, I hit pause and then I pray to God that when I hit unpause, I'm still able to keep recording. So I don't know. Maybe at some point I'll figure out how to get these things done. It because it, I you know I I listen and go well. This sometimes uh, without any music or anything, it's boring. I mean, I guess I could sing a song, but nobody wants to hear me sing. Anyways, uh, so it it's it's me, Rob Cohen. I'm back. It's been a while. Done a lot of reading. Um, some of them I really just didn't feel like talking about. Some of them I didn't want to bore you with. Um, I did read the new Jack Reacher book, uh, Personal, and yeah, it was okay. I wasn't uh, exceptionally excited about it. I did like the fact that a lot of it took place in England and in London, um, but for the most part, it's unfortunately pretty forgettable at this point. It certainly doesn't rake up amongst any of the um, you know, memorable Jack Reacher novels, and it's coming on whatever it is, 15, 20 books by now. And even though I read so many of them back to back to back, some of them did stand out much better than others, and this one, for whatever reason, it just didn't uh, didn't resonate with me. It hasn't really stood out. So I'm not really going to talk about that. I did read quite a few more of the uh, Roy Grace books. I think, uh, I think I'm on book nine by now uh, of the Roy Grace books. So I actually just started uh, the ninth book called um, Dead Man's Time. And I think after I finish that, I'll only be two behind. There's one other one, and then I think Peter James has a new book coming out soon. So I will have almost caught up, which is pretty cool, considering I didn't even know that uh, Peter James was an author or Roy Grace was a, a character until whatever it was, May or June. Um, and, and those are really becoming, uh, well, becoming at this point, having read uh almost nine nine books in the last couple of months they they really are uh, um, fantastic books and one of my favorites uh, looking forward to meeting Peter James again I think he's coming to Los Angeles in November and he and I have been emailing back and forth and hoping to get together with him and grab a drink or something like that just say hi um, funny one of the books uh, one of the actually the last book I read the eighth book called um, not dead yet involves a, a stalker a, a lady Gaga Madonna type of a performer who has a stalker and uh, after I finished the book I wrote to him and and said you know that I hoped he he didn't uh, perceive me as a stalker along the likes of the uh, the bad guys in that book and so you know whatever we'll see how that goes um, but I wanted to talk to you this episode about um, one book to conclude the Jekyll and Hyde series that we were talking about uh, last few times and then to talk about really the uh, um, the major amount of reading I've been doing over the past couple of weeks, and I'll get to that in a second. So first, I wanted to talk about Valerie Martin's book, uh, Mary Riley. And as you recall, um, going back a couple episodes, I reread Jekyll and Hyde. I read um, the book Hyde by Daniel Levine, and then Mary Riley by Valerie Martin. And Mary Riley is the story of, uh, obviously, Mary Riley, who happens to be Dr. Jekyll's housemaiden. So she works in the house, and she takes care of him, and other than that, I didn't really know a whole lot about the book. I know that they had made a movie out of the book starring Julia Roberts and John Malkovich. I'd never seen the movie, and I didn't really know anything else about the book. Um, I had read one other book by Valerie Martin. We talked about it before called The Ghost of the Mary Celeste, I think it was. The Ghost Ghost Ship Mary Celeste, something like that. And as you recall, um, I was really excited about the book uh, until I read it. Um, and then I was somewhat disappointed in the book. I enjoyed the way she wrote. Uh, I certainly enjoyed the way that she um, kept the book moving, and it was an enjoyable read, but there really wasn't much story, or there wasn't enough story to it. So I really didn't know what to expect with Mary Riley, and unfortunately, it really was a, a fairly big disappointment because there's really no story here. Um, it, it's about 200 and... and 50, 260 pages. Um, and it's all first person. It's the character of Mary Riley, who 
is talking about it's, it's actually her diary I, th- I think is what it is so it's her writings in her diary of everything that happens and her interactions with dr jekyll and then her interactions with mr hyde and i think it was supposed to be like this love story i think it was supposed to be her falling in love with dr jekyll and other than that the book really didn't have much of a story it didn't really go anywhere Um, I was much more impressed by Daniel Levine's book, Hyde, than I was of this book with respect to how it interrelated with the original source material itself. Hyde by Levine really carefully tracked the story, uh, you know, the original source material with respect to dates and times and, and sequence of events. This book really didn't keep the reader informed as to how much time it passed or what events took place relative to the original source material. And so it was a lot of just her ramblings. Um, It seemed as if Valerie Martin took a lot more time and skilled attention at getting the the dialect right. Um, One of the things that I found incredibly annoying is the use of the word mun, M-U-N, instead of must, M-U-S-T, to the point where it got so noticeable as if every other word in the English language was the same back then as it is current day, except for this one word, mun, instead of must. And so when that word would pop out, it would seem anachronistic to me. It would seem just completely ludicrous, and it took me out of the story a little bit. But again, back to the story, there really isn't one. Valerie Martin is a, uh, or uh, Mary Riley is a made-up character. She doesn't really appear in the original source material, which is a creative way to attempt to adapt or or reinvent the Jekyll and Hyde story. And that's why I was kind of interested in. Um, but similar to The Ghost of Mary Celeste, it's a great premise, a, a premise that is um, something that would be interesting to read, but very poor delivery. Um, Mary Riley doesn't really do anything. She cleans a lot. She dusts the chimneys a lot. She brings food to Dr. Jekyll a lot. She tells the story of her own childhood, which was sad, and how she got, uh, you know, welts on her hands or something like that. She deals with the death of her own mother. And somehow or other, through this process, she ends up falling in love with Dr. Jekyll, and she perceives that there's this reciprocal feeling with her. But you don't really get a lot of that from the story. It, it Even though it's her diary, um, there's no reason to think that Dr. Jekyll really cared about her in any way. Uh, we certainly don't have that from the source material, believe that, that there was a romantic interest that he had um, that was living in his house and, and worked for him. And, and the appearance of, of Mr. Hyde is so few and far between as to be um, sort of non-existent and non-impactful. And so I found myself rushing through this book simply to get it over and done with because, look, I wanted the exciting stuff to happen, similar to what we've discussed before. The story is exciting when the bad guy's on the scene. Bad guy never showed up, really. I think uh, uh, Mary Riley had one interaction with Mr. Hyde, and that was it. And it wasn't even a particularly exciting or dynamic interaction. Otherwise, her interactions were with the other people who worked in the house, Dr. Jekyll, when she would have interactions with him, and then a couple interactions with people outside the house as she was taking care of um, taking care of the death of her mother. Now, there was a, a, a strange interlude where she runs an errand for Dr. Jekyll where she takes some sort of a note to um, the ha- a brothel, to the madam of a brothel. And you get the feeling that something nasty had happened in the in at the brothel. I think that the the madam takes Mary to the room, and and Mary describes in sort of uh, lack of clarity, unclear language what she sees. But there's blood, and there seems to be a struggle or something like that. But you don't really find out exactly what happened. It's just that something bad happened. Doctor Jekyll was involved in, and she's trying to come up with other things that it could have been, other explanations, whether it's that Dr. Jekyll went there to deliver a baby or to save somebody. I mean, she tries to concoct these explanations for the um, macabre scene that she sees in this room, but you don't ever really find out what happened. And this is because, again, 
it's told from her perspective, so she doesn't know. I think she eventually discovers or, or towards the end of the book realizes that it's something that Mr. Hyde had done that Dr. Jekyll was covering up for. But it, it doesn't really have any impact or, or oomph to it. And so I just found myself kind of hoping it would end, hoping it would get exciting. I was hoping for some, you know, uh, uh, goosebumps or chills or, you know, feeling of, of nasty things out there or something scary, something that would be unnerving. And it, it never really came up. Um, one of the uh, um, uh, reviews of the book that shows up on the front says it's a part psychological novel, part social history, part eerie horror tale. There was nothing eerie or horrific about it. Um, it 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 really was just kind of a straightforward. Here's a woman who lived in the house. She didn't know what was going on. She developed this delusional belief that she and her master were falling in love with each other. But it turns out that her master ended up being this, you know, madman, Mister Hyde, and then um, he ends up dying. And that was pretty much it. Um, and so I was kind of disappointed. I, I would be interested. I haven't done a lot of research on the subject, but I'd be interested to see if there are other books that have utilized the doc- Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde um, canon or source material for other interpretations or other um, experiences of the same work. Uh, but I haven't looked into it, and, and I'd be interested. But again, I, I would kind of want it to be a similar type of of dark, eerie, creepy feeling that um, the original novella and and Hyde by Daniel Levine um, were able to portray. Now, that being said, there were a couple of parts of the book that I thought were pretty well written and thought-provoking. And being as how I I bought this book used, um, I didn't really have a problem taking a pen and and underlining some of these passages because I thought they were kind of interesting and and this was as I was still earlier on in the book and expecting it to get better and expecting it to be along the lines of of what I had envisioned so when I saw some of these passages they kind of resonated with me as in they as in they were potentially um, foreshadowing of what was to come Um, there was a, a part where Dr. Jekyll and Mary Riley are talking and um I think that that uh, Mary was complaining about the weeds and 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 you know for the gardening and stuff like that, and she says and um, Doctor Jekyll says weeds, Mary, where do they come from if you haven't put them there? And she says why the air must be full of them, for they are so much about that we see whole forests as if grown up without cultivation. And he says, do you have an answer, Mary, as to? Um, how they are much stronger than the things that we want to grow. You know, weeds are able to grow even though we don't want them to grow, whereas by comparison, the stuff that we do try and cultivate, they don't grow as well. And her response is, it seems being wild, they have a greater will to life. And I, I it, this is on page 57, so it's still earlier in the book. And when I saw that, I thought, well, this is an interesting, an interesting encapsulation of Mr. Hyde, which is, the thing that you don't want to exist has such a strong will to live that it will, you know, do what's necessary to defeat any actions to try and um, eliminate it. So I thought that was that was kind of strong. And as their discussion continues, um, he says, uh, um, "I think it's true." She she says, "I think it's true of many things as is deprived and children too." that they grow strong when no one cares for them and seem to love whatever life they can eke out and will keep and will kill to keep it while the pampered child sickens and dies. It, it's interesting. I just found that passage interesting because it does highlight the fact that, um, you know, Mr. Hyde seems to be something that somebody that nobody cares for. Nobody seems to have uh, um, any affection for Dr. Jekyll as a, I think, a love and hate relationship with, with Mr. Hyde as well. And yet those that are pampered, Dr. Jekyll, who has always been pampered because he lived a, um, a well-to-do existence, he brought up well by his father and has really no seeming cares in the world, he's the one that sickens and dies while... Um, Mr. Hyde seems to do whatever needs to be done in order to stay alive. So it was it was interesting. But again, 
these passages only work if you already know the story. They don't work if you're unfamiliar with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and, and that dynamic between the two of them. And I'm not sure if that was intended by the author as sort of a um, like an in-joke to the reader or a wink and a nod at the reader to say, hey, this is, since you already know what's going to happen, this is kind of a foreshadowing to that. This is this is maybe a an explanation for that so you can gather some some insight. I don't know. It's it's because I one of the things that I don't remember very clearly is I don't remember ever finding out I, well, I don't remember at what point in the novel we find out that it's Dr. Jekyll because I don't seem to think that it was something that was readily obvious. It it was obvious to me because I obviously knew what the book was about and and the back of the book does say that she's a house she works in the household of Dr. Henry Jekyll. But if you're reading this with no canvas, it's a blank slate, you don't know anything about the book, it might take a while. I think it did take a while before you are informed that it's Dr. Jekyll. So would these passages still have the same um, the same impact? I, I honestly I don't know. Now, the only other passage that I wanted to share with you is, again, still very early in the book. And um, she's talking, Mary's talking about um, when she's going on this errand to visit the madam. And so she has to go through uh, unseemly parts of town. And she says that um, she grew up on the streets or some of the streets. Um, and she figures, she sees that these streets were the streets that she had to go through now to get to the madam's place were much more dingy and dirty and, and despicable than the ones that she grew up on. And so she says, even as a child, it seemed to me that what made such places wicked was not so much that they were dirty, crowded, ugly, and falling down, but that the people who come to live in them know this is a place where no rules or manners need ever be applied, and so they act exactly as they feel. Were the gentle classes put into such a place and bidden to live there, they would not know how to act. And it's interesting because that's a, a reflection, I think, of any type of a slummy type of an area, which is it becomes a slum because there's less attention and focus on law and order or being civilized or being well-behaved. And so since there are less rules or since there's less oversight in the enforcement of those rules, then the people are free to live the way they want. And it, it, it again, is a reflection on this concept that the person who is not instructed on how to live appropriately will inevitably find ways to live inappropriately. And I think that's what, um, I think that's what the, the commentary is on that, that they will, without having any rules, they will act to basically avoid rules. Um, and, and there's no guidance as to how they're supposed to act. So there, there's no law and order. There's the, the streets become dingy. It's, it's, look, it's the easiest, the easiest concept to grasp. Child, kids, if they're not told to clean their room, they're not going to clean their room. That's it. It's the same thing she's talking about. These people have not been told to keep clean their habitat, their community, their neighborhood, and so they don't. And that's why it becomes unseemly, a blight, dirty, and and um, you know, a nasty, nasty place to visit. So I don't really have much else to say about Mary Riley. I was disappointed. I wanted it to be better. Um, I certainly won't be reading any more Valerie Martin books because this is my second experience where the the book jacket and the promise of what would be delivered was just not what was eventually received. Um, so that that's uh, I, I, that's the end of my for at least for now the end of my uh, my Doctor Jekyll Mister Hyde trilogy reading program whatever you want to call it. So that was that Valerie Martin's uh, Mary Riley. Oh, but that's not to say that I'm not going to see the movie. I do want to see the movie because I'm interested to see how it's adapted because I would imagine that the adaptation of the book as the movie is going to be a whole lot more suspenseful or thriller-ish or dynamic. I mean, it's got to be. Otherwise, making a movie out of this book would be really boring. I mean, it just, nothing happens. So that was that. Um, now, I read another book, um, which I'm really, really excited to talk about, but I'm not going to talk about it now. Um, and it's Gangsterland by Todd Goldberg. 
uh, came out uh, a few weeks ago. I really want to talk about it, uh, but my brother Phil has not read it yet. I think he's planning on reading it uh, sometime in December. So I'm going to have to hold off my comments about Gangsterland until Phil has a chance to read it. First and foremost, because he is probably one of the few people who actually listens to this, so I don't want to give any spoilers. And the other one is I'd, I'd love the opportunity to speak with him about it and get his intake on it and or his input on it um, and, and discuss it in a little more detail at that point. So the other book that I wanted to talk about is actually a trilogy of books, and it's the Ken Follett trilogy called The Century Trilogy. And the last book in the trilogy came out uh, a, a couple of weeks ago called Edge of Eternity. The reason why it's called the Century Trilogy is because it basically begins at the turn of the, uh, right at 1911 is when the first book began. And it, this last book takes you through basically 2008. So it pretty much is 100 years um, of America, oh no, of, of the, the world's history told through um, the families of, of the lives of the people who lived it. Um, and they're all fictionalized people who have interacted each with each other and with the the uh, the players in history over the past 100 years. And this trilogy is basically a, a four-year endeavor for me because the first book came out in 2010, the second book came out in 2012, and the third book now in 2014. And they are massive, massive books. The first book was called Fall of Giants. And it was 985 pages. And it covered 1911 through 1924. But it really was through 1918 because um, it, it, Ken Follett covers 1920, or 1919 through 1924 over the course of about 70 pages. So it's, it's pretty much 1911 through 1918, basically the extent of World War I. The second book, called Winter of the World, which came out, I said, in, in 2012, this one was uh, slightly shorter, it's 940 pages, and it covers 1933 through 1949, although, again, it was mostly 1945 because um, 1946 through 1949 was basically, it was basically another, you know, 100 pages or so. And then this last book, Edge of Eternity, which was massive, 1,100 pages, 1,100 and, no, I'm sorry, I lied, 1,098, 1,098 pages. And I, am, I insist on believing that not only was it 1,098 pages, but the typeface was smaller, <laughs> and it covered a whole hell of a lot longer period of time. It starts out in 1961, and like I said, it goes all the way through 2008. Now, it really ends up going through, well, it's, it's, it, it covers you know, pretty much all of that period of time. So that's why it had to be lengthier than the other two books. And, and this book, it does spend more time in certain historical events and less time in others. It, 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 it's the, all of the books were broken up into sections by year. So you would have a section that was, for instance, 1961. You'd have a section that was 1961 to 1962. Then you'd have a section that would be 1963. Then you'd later have a section that was 1984 to 1987. So you can see that when there were years where more took place, he spent a lot more time, and then he would kind of push some of the years together to, to bridge the gap of time until another noteworthy event took place. And so what he did was he created this family, he created multiple families all over the world, and he tracked them from world beginning of World War I all the way through to um, 2008. And 2008 is a little bit of a, of a mis is misleading because he, he ends um, Edge of Eternity at 1989, and then he has an epilogue, which is 2008. So it's really 1911 through 1989. Um, and it follows American families, German families, British families, Russian families, no Asian families involved, no um, Middle East uh, families involved. It's it's really the uh, the superpowers, I think, is what you could call it. Um, and it it's 
when I finished Edge of Eternity and I, I closed the book and, and, and had a moment to think about it, I, I was kind of overcome a little bit with emotion in a way that I wasn't expecting. Not that I was crying, not that I was um, sad, so to speak, but what I realized is that this is a, 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 a chronicle of the world's history over the last hundred years. And when you think about history, you think about all of the centuries um, you know, rec- of recorded history, truly the 20th century is the one in which there was the most activity. When you think about all the wars, whether it be World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the Middle East and the Gulf War, then you add to that the social wars, um, you know, you uh, women's liberation and um, obviously the Holocaust and and civil rights. Um, then you talk about the Cold War and and the the um, Americans versus the, the Russians. So much happened in this year, in this in this one century of time. And you think about all the people who were affected by each and every single one of these events. And that's that's the aspect of it that, that really kind of got to me, which is you think about how much happened over that 100-year period of time. And then you think about how many people were affected by it, both positively and negatively. How many people died? How many people died fighting for their country? How many people were died because they were killed by their own country. And then how many people fought for rights that it took years and years and years to acquire? Um, Edge of Eternity chronicles the civil rights, um, the civil rights f- battle through basically the 60s and, and you know, even after um, Dr. Martin Luther King all the way up through, through Lyndon Johnson and, and even further until really desegregation was was finalized. And you compare that with the building of the Berlin Wall and a, a, a 1961 to 19, 1989, almost 30 year period of time where where the East, the, you know, the communists were, were persecuting their own people and holding them hostage in a way that's not you know, it's it's similar to not identical, obviously, but similar to the civil rights um, act, uh, uh, um, the civil rights issues and the discrimination practices that were especially prominent in the South, um, and so it 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 was a it it one of the things that that made it so much more powerful for me is that my grandmother passed away. Only a few months ago, she passed away at the end of April, and she was born in 1923. So she saw over her 90 years, she she witnessed all of this. She was, in my mind, other than World War One, which had been completed by the time she was born, but she, other than that, she experienced all of this. And so I think about all the characters who who permeated these three volumes. And I think about those people as being emblematic of real people, all of whom experience such amazing changes in in the the world, positive and negative, um, exciting and 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 frightening. And it just made me kind of nostalgic for a different time, missing my grandmother. And, and and sad for all these people who are no longer around in the 21st century to see how much the actions and the activities of the 21st century have impacted where we are today, both both positively, positively and negatively. But at the, the final book ends on a happy note, which is the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so, well, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then if you catch the the meaning of the significance of 2008 the epilogue is 2008 it's the um the election of president obama and you've now spent a thousand and ninety five pages in which a vast majority of those pages the african-americans have been persecuted and discriminated against and one of the major characters is an african-american who who marched in the in the in the the bus riots and the walks and and was active with Dr. Martin Luther King, and 
the conclusion to the to his story is and not as the election of 2008 and president obama giving these this grand statement um accepting his victory and you think about it over the course of what was a little bit less than 50 years how far our country came and it was just it was overwhelming more so than i had expected ken follett is not a great writer uh, and i don't think that anybody would argue with me about that i've read many of his books um i'd have to to look at it um to be clear but i think it's probably 10 12 13 of his books or something like that and he his books really run the spectrum if you're not familiar with ken follett's work he really made his name at the outset writing espionage, um, World War II, Eye of the Needle, Key to Rebecca, I think Triple, as well as is a, a World War II. And so that was where he, he cut his chops, so to speak, getting started. I don't think he really gained international and, and multi-level international acclaim until Pillars of the Earth, which was a, a long... Uh, you know, 900,000 page book about the building of this cathedral in, in England someplace. And it took me a long time to read it. It took me a long time to read it because I'd had it on my bookshelf for a while and I kept looking at it and I just couldn't bring myself to read it because of how long it was. And frankly, I was worried, like, who wants to fucking read a book about a building of a church? I, I just couldn't figure out how a 900, however long it was page book would, would hold my interest. And incidentally, I had the that book in uh, was a used book, and I bought that book when I was with my grandmother in Palm Springs at one of the used bookstores that she liked to go to. So anyways, bring it full circle. But I finally did read Pillars of the Earth, and I really enjoyed it, and I know that that's a book that is really polarizing. You either love it or you hate it. Um, I know that my friends who over at uh, Literary Disco, which I listened to, they did an episode on Pillars of the Earth, and they hated it. I mean, they were finding everything wrong with it, dialogue, story, um, it seemed as if there was a, some sort of a rape every other page, and they, they really, really castigated it, but I enjoyed it. Um, Ken Follett revisited that same idea when he wrote a sequel, quote-unquote, to, to uh, Pillars of the Earth called World Without End. I didn't read it. I didn't feel that I had a need to. I read Pillars of the Earth. World Without End takes place, I think, at the same location, but a couple hundred years later. I watched a couple of the episodes of the adaptation of Pillars of the Earth. I didn't really enjoy it, and that was that was about it. But I've stayed pretty current with Ken Follett's books. He went back to some of the um, uh, uh, World War II espionage. He wrote a great book called Hornet's Nest. I think Hornet's Nest, Hornet's Flight, Hornet's Flight, Hornet's Flight. Um, he wrote a really interesting book called Jack Dawes. I think one of those was about um, uh, women soldiers or paratroopers in World War II. And he's really written kind of across the board. Um, so it's it's difficult to pin, pin him down as a specific genre of writer. One of the books that I really enjoyed by him was called A Dangerous Fortune. And I think it, if I remember correctly, I just remember I really liked it. Um, it took place at some sort of an English boarding school and, and four kids who have a secret that they keep over a long period of time, whatever it was. Um, so when when... Fall of Giants came out. It wasn't really a, a, a discussion for me or thought about whether I'd read it or not. I have pretty much kept current with, with Ken Follett's work over the past 20 years, and it was no question I was going to read it. The, the idea, though, of it being a historical novel, which it seems after I've read it now to fall in line a little bit with Herman Woke's Winds of War and War and Remembrance, although much more expansive of the the timeline of events um it seemed like a no-brainer that i would want to read it i was a history major in college winds of war and war and remembrance are two of my favorite books i really enjoy the author that can take historical events and historical people and interact them with fictional characters i think it's an amazing uh, uh skill that and talent that authors have and ken follett did it in this book in in all three of the books but I know it's easy for me to say that this book is, is the best of the three because it's fresher in my mind. But I just think if I, if I recall the previous two books, 
Despite how long they were and what a shorter period of time they covered, I seem to feel as if Edge of Eternity really delved far deeper into the events of the last half of the 20th century, far better than the first two books did. For Fall of Giants to cover mostly World War I, I don't recall there being a lot of World War I in the book. I think it focused a lot more on the people and their stories and their interactions and how they grew because of the events of World War I. But I don't recall there being uh, this mass of characters going to fight, and I don't remember there being this long periods of, of um, descriptions of battles and things like that. So it felt sort of um, superficial to me. Um, when I posted that I uh, I gave this five stars on my Goodreads and it posted my Facebook, somebody who I'm Facebook friends with, Shari, said that it she liked it as well. It was just too much of a, a it was a soap opera ish, and and yes, it absolutely was a soap opera. It was a soap opera that was designed to demonstrate how these people were affected by the events of the 20th century. But yeah, it was a soap opera. Otherwise, if it wasn't a soap opera, it would be a textbook. Um, and so you have to get past the the love affairs and the personal relationships and this person who needs this job and this person who, um, you know, backstabbed on this person and, and whatever it was. You, you need that kind of stuff because it keeps the story going. And in fact, that makes the story more realistic because history is not just events and dates and times. It is the people who experience those events. So I wanted to see how certain people experienced the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And in Winter of the World, there is a discussion of one of the families was at, if I recall correctly, was at Pearl Harbor when the bombing took place. And so you got to experience it from their perception. You have an edge of eternity. You have um, one of the characters who goes down to... Uh, um, to the South for the Freedom Rides and is there as there's persecution of the African Americans and there's riots and there's beatings and there's and one of the characters is beaten up and he is, uh, you know, hosed with a, a, a fire hose. And and so that's how you learn about the history is experiencing it through these characters. Um, and I seem to recall or I, I seem to believe that the characters interacted with the real historical people far more in Edge of Eternity than in the previous books. I may be wrong. Again, this is the book that's more um, familiar and memorable because I just read it. Winter of the World two years ago, Fall of Giants four years ago when I read these. Um, but in, in Edge of Eternity, you had the characters interacting with John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Khrushchev, Gorbachev, um, you know, e even some of the other leaders of the of Poland and and Hungary, which I wasn't as familiar with. Um, but you have the interactions with those characters, Nixon and and Haldeman and John Dean and and the people who are responsible for the Watergate break-ins. So you you have a much more complete reflection of the history of the times because you get to experience it with these real people. And I can only imagine the level of research that Ken Follett had to do because it's astounding how descriptive he is with respect to the characters and how they how they dressed and how they spoke and how they treated people, whether it was people that they were publicly treat, uh, in, interacting with or people that they were interacting with in, in private. And there's clearly, clearly there's a bent to it. I'm not going to lie and say that Ken Follett treats all of the politicians the same way. It is obvious, obvious that Ken Follett is a Democrat because the Democrats get the, the positive views and the Republicans get the, the, the short shrift. Now, whether that is a reflection of Ken Follett's political views prior to the writing of this book. Now, remember, he's British, so... I'm not sure that he really took a stance Republican or Democrat, you know, at any point in, in the political history. But 
It could be that through his research, this is what he's discovered. But he he definitely, definitely treats the Kennedys with um, a, a, a rose-colored brush. Um, he treats Nixon horribly. He treats Bush horribly, uh, Bush Sr. And he treats Reagan pretty horribly, horribly um, to the point where I think one of the closing uh, statements of the book as the um, – as the uh, Berlin Wall is falling, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up. I gotta hold on. So I here you go. I, I was trying to remember the events of the the falling of the Berlin Wall because we all remember the speech that Reagan gave at the Berlin Wall where he demanded that Gorbachev you know tear down this wall, and yet Reagan figures very uh, sporadically into um, into the into the story. And the fall of the Berlin Wall is chronicled is chronicled pretty well uh, in the 1988 to 1989 section of the book, although it's a very short section of this book. And by that time, you recall that President Bush was was in office in 1989 when the wall fell. And yet, I'm sitting here trying to I'm, I'm anticipating some sort of a storyline where Reagan will go to Berlin to the wall and make his great speech, and it never happens. And then the wall comes down. And so there's a couple of people who are talking after the Berlin Wall has come down. And they are trying to figure out who will get credit for the fall of communism. And they say, um, he says, uh, the gates are open. The East Germans are coming. Can you believe it? The Berlin Wall has fallen down. This is the end of communism. It's what we've been working for all these years. And the other guy says, you know what? We did nothing. Everything we did, he says, everything we did was completely ineffective. Despite all our efforts, Vietnam, Cuba, Nicaragua became communist countries. The places we tried to prevent communism, Iran, Guatemala, Chile, Cambodia, Laos, none of them do any good. And now Eastern Europe is abandoning communism with no help from us. And he says, well, you know, all the same, we've got to figure out a way to take credit or at least have the president take credit for it. And he says, well, it can't be President Bush because he's only been in office for less than a year. And as he says, he's been behind the curve all along. So he can't claim to have caused this. So what about Reagan? And he says, really? Reagan didn't do this. Gorbachev did it. It was Gorbachev and the price of oil and the fact that communism never really worked anyways. And he says, well, what about the Star Wars system? He says, Star Wars system was nothing. It was science fiction. It never really went further than that. And the guy says, well, remember, Reagan did make that speech where he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You remember? And he says, yeah, I remember. Are you going to tell people that communism collapsed because Reagan made a speech? They'll never believe that. And the response was, sure they will. And I'm reading that going, yeah, yeah, we, I, we, we kind of did. Uh, yeah, I, I believed it. Um, I, I, I believe that communism fell because Reagan made a speech. Um, so it, it's clearly... Clearly, there's a bent um, against Republicans, and and I don't know whether that's borne out by history or if that's um, Ken Follett's, uh, you know, own take on spin on things. Because it's easy to look in the past and think that, um, you know, Reagan was a great president, Bush not so much. Nixon, Nixon may have done some tremendous things. He may have done some crappy things, but in this book, he's only the villain. He's at no point. Um, uh, viewed as as a hero of any type of a uh, of any type of a movement at all. Interesting. Dr. Martin Luther King obviously figures prominently in the book, and his um, his uh, uh, interactions with some of the characters. Um, the characters were present at the shooting of Robert Kennedy and the shooting of Martin Luther King, but not JFK. But what's interesting was the the assassinated. Assassination of JFK was told in a very interesting manner, which was the the assassination of JFK is something that for people who were around in that who were around at the time, it's that they can tell you where they were when they heard that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And so instead of Ken Follett telling us about the assassination of Kennedy, he instead tells us where all of the characters were when they found out and how they found out. 
this person was here, this person was here, this person, uh, one of the characters was uh, um, an actress, and I think she had just finished a Broadway show, and the audience was, um, you know, all a Twitter with the rumor that that JFK had been shot. So that's how she found out. And, and so it, it's an interesting way of addressing the issue. He doesn't go into the discussion of who killed JFK or what the, the method was or who may have been involved. Nothing about the conspiracies or anything like that. It's about the people. It's about the characters. It's about – because – I think that what he wanted to do was he wanted to tell our story. And when I say our story, I mean the people of the world. This is a story of the people of the world over the last hundred years. So it's important to note where they were when they heard that this happened. Yes, some of the people, somebody was present when RFK was killed. Somebody was present when Dr. King was killed. Somebody was present. This family was locked in East Germany for 25 years or 28 years, and this is what they went through when the wall came down. And that's how history becomes tangible. This is how history becomes a part of our fabric. And, and I think it's really a, a, it, it, not that it could be used as a textbook because I, I can't validate that everything that's contained in in the the books is is accurate although i can't imagine that it wouldn't be accurate with as long as the books are and as um as much research as i i know he did because i follow his twitter feed um it they really could be a good companion to maybe some history classes they could be an interesting companion to it the winds of war and, and war and remembrance could be an interesting companion to the study of of World War II, not that they're textbooks, but they can provide um, additional insight to what the people were going through at the time that these events were taking place. One of the things that I found interesting about the book, though, is is about the stories. Is they're kind of off generations, um, and, and it only occurred to me as I was reading this last book that that they don't really follow the traditional 20th century generations as we know them because when you think about it if you think about generations the easiest generation to to um perceive is the baby boomer generation so these are the children that were the product of the post-war uh baby boom so we're talking about basically the block of time between 1945 46 through early 1950s. So that's like the baby boomers. So going backwards, then you've got their parents who were, their parents were born in the 1920s. Um, and so their parents were turn of the century children. So moving forward, you've got turn of the century, then the 20s, then you've got the uh, 20s to, to 30s to, to early 30s. You've got the late 40s and f to early 50s. Then you've got the mid 70s where there was another boom. We got that Generation X. And then the, you've got the Generation Y, which was like whatever the, the 90s kids at, and moving forward. So the these books, though, they follow a different trajectory because they've got kids of the pre-turn of the century because that's who was fighting in World War One. And then they have kids right around World War One, so their children were fighting. They they were you know they were towards the the early stages of World War Two, and then they were having kids. the 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 children in the books were born in the early to mid forties, so their children were adults by nineteen sixty one. The the one of the characters in Edge of Eternity, George George Jakes. Uh, the African-American gentleman who goes to work for Bobby Kennedy and is involved in the freedom rights and things like that, he's already out of law school by 1961 when he gets a job working for Bobby Kennedy. So that's not the baby boomer generation. And so his kids, when he he, he stays a little later, I, he doesn't have kids until later, but the, that's the same generation as the, the um, the American family, the British family, the Russian family—they all kind of had children around the same age. So it's a weird, a weird view of the generations because those characters weren't really products of the major generation baby booms. 
and that's why it was a little bit more difficult for me to pers- uh, to um to consider how my grandmother went through these things because her being born in 1923 she's she ends up being the parents of the baby boomer generation so it it her her timeline of events is a little off from the timeline of events that takes place in the in the books uh, as far as how it how at what age she was at when these things were taking place but that's i mean that's a minor thing it doesn't that was i think done in order to to have the characters be the right age when certain events took place one of the things that i did have a struggle with is because there are so many characters and time does pass i lost track of how old some of these characters were um now whether he could have you know threw in a little thing that says you know so and so now 27 i don't know but it it did i did get to a point where it was a little bit more difficult for me to keep track of how old some of these characters were because you develop the relationship with them at at one point and then you may not revisit them until a couple hundred pages later in which case you you know obviously time has passed um but that again it's it's minor i i would have liked to have read all the books back to back to back but it would have been obviously uh, you know 3000 pages at that point so way too much to ha- to try and read at one time but you develop a a a connection to these characters in one book and then when you get to the next book those characters are not main characters anymore you're now with their children and then when you get to the next book their children are no longer, you know, the the second generation that was in the second book. They're no longer the main characters. It's now their children, and so you you develop these relationships, and then that that relationship kind of just fades away. And after two years, you're trying to remember who was that again, and what was that, and and the author does try and remind you here and there of what what that character's major struggle was in the previous book or two. But when those characters do eventually pass away or move on, there's not a lot of emotion because, A, it's been two years, if not longer, since you read about those characters, and B, their send-off is so far in the background because they're not a main character anymore. And so it's kind of a weird way to, to deal with that. And And having had the length of time in between books you lose the connection with those characters. So again, I was much more attached to the characters in the last book because it was familiar and I'm still reading, um, you know, I was still invested in those characters' lives. There were a couple of characters who did pass away in this book where it was a little bit more meaningful and emotional to me because I remember better what their struggles were in the previous books. Um, so, so he does do a very nice job of, of bringing it all together by the time the, the book is ended. I would be interested in either seeing what an original draft of the books were, how much of the history did he write that he had to cut out, because the, 21st, the 20th century, for as much as, as he chronicled, so much other stuff took place. He gives Vietnam very little attention, one character, only one character, ends up going to Vietnam. He discusses that guy's um, uh, experience in Vietnam over the course of maybe 10 pages, and that's it. None of the characters seem to go to, to Korea, or if there was Korea, it was very give a very short shrift. None of the characters experienced the Persian Gulf War, which really could have been the next chapter, but... I can understand he didn't need to go there because really the the fall of the Berlin Wall was the capper on the story. He doesn't really do a whole lot on the, uh, there's a little bit of the the Cold War espionage stuff. Uh by the time the book starts, the uh Bay of Pigs invasion has already taken place, so that doesn't get a lot of attention. Although the Cuban Missile Crisis gets a lot of attention, which was very interesting. Very well done the way that he portrayed those events, both from the side of JFK and JFK and the side of Khrushchev. And so, by I'm curious what was left out. I'm curious what did not get into the final version of the book. Um, and, and that's the same for obviously the the first two books as well.
But that's neither here nor there. It was just a wonderful experience reading all three of these books. I truly think that this last book... Now, this last book I actually was was hesitant about. It was never an issue about whether I'd read it. And it really wasn't even an issue about how long it was, although it's a freaking heavy damn book. Um, it was more the subject matter because I find World War One fascinating. I find World War Two more fascinating. I find post-World War Two not fascinating at all. Cold War, not really interesting. Vietnam, too distressing for, to, to, to really invest a lot of time in. Um, the, the East Berlin communism, the, the Russian influence, really did not believe that that was an aspect that I would find interesting. And so I was hesitant because I didn't think that the second half of the 20th century was as compelling as the first half. And I was so wrong. I could not read enough. I could not read fast enough. I was devouring the pages because the the stories and the history of the last half of the 20th, 20th century was incredibly fascinating with Kennedy and the freedom rides and, and civil rights and rise of communism and the walling off of Berlin and just and the hippie movement and the free love and west germany and east germany and and eastern europe and western europe it was absolutely fascinating and that's why i think that these books would be great companion pieces to history classes because you may think that the cold war is boring you may think because look the cold war is boring because there's no nobody fucking fights i mean there's no battles there's no <laughs> guns and bombs and stuff like that. i mean thank god but there's, it's not really a war. It's a cold war that, where nothing really happens. And it can be perceived as boring. And this book does an exceptional job of bringing it to life in a way that is understandable and fascinating. Ken Follett is not good at dialogue. That's fine. He's not. That's not his forte. Some of the dialogue was corny. Some of it was stupid. Some of it was silly. But his analysis of political events... His creation of situations in which fictional characters interacted with historical figures was exceptional. And that's what really drove the book. Yes, it was a soap opera, but the soap opera aspect of it was a device to keep the historical events moving. And that's why I think that these books would be a great addition to any type of a history class because they bring the history to life. It's not just a recitation of dates and facts and events, which can sometimes feel like VCR programming instructions if anybody knows what a VCR is anymore. So that that's my push. If if any you know history professors are listening, I encourage you to in, to introduce these books to part of the curriculum because I think they would really make the experience that much more well rounded. I think that's why I like reading these books. That's why I like reading books that involve historical figures and historical events and, and real characters interacting with fictional characters such as the Herman Woke books because they bring history to life. History is an, an amazing thing. We can learn so much from history. But you got to invest the time and you got to try and figure out a way to make it not dry. And these books did a wonderful job of that. I am so glad that I read these books. I'm so glad that, that I, I got to experience the lives of all of these characters. And I'm so glad that I got to experience the history of the 20th century through all of these characters' eyes. Yes, there were parts that were slow. And yes, there were parts that were boring. But I've never finished an 1,100-page book where I wanted it to be longer. And this book, I wanted it to be longer. It ended up taking me just about two weeks to finish it. Two weeks? Yeah, maybe a little bit more than two weeks, I think. And I wanted it to be longer. Um, I enjoyed it that much. And I felt like the, I worked out my biceps by uh, holding this book up for as long as I had to hold it up. So that's my review of the Century Trilogy by Ken Follett. First book, Fall a Giant. Second book, Winter of the World. Third book, Edge of Eternity. If you haven't read them, I absolutely recommend it. Start at the beginning and work your way through. Um because I think you'll feel better about it. You'll feel as if you've gone through 
a hundred years of of world history you'll feel as if you've been through those battles you'll feel as if you've accomplished something that when the berlin wall does finally come down spoiler alert in 1989 you will feel that sense of relief and an excitement and exultation that the characters feel because you've now seen what all those characters had to go through you will feel the relief and you will understand the tears that these characters shed when barack obama is elected president of the united states when only 50 years earlier there were beatings in the south there was discrimination and there was um just complete atrocities against african americans you will feel the excitement when the Berlin Wall comes down of the fall of communism because you will have experienced 50 years of Cold War, whether it be the Cuban Missile Crisis or the oppression of the East Germans or the espionage of, of you know, the, the, the Russian Politburo. Um, you will feel the excitement of the relief of the fall of communism. And it was just an exceptional reason experience. So that's that. I've got the, uh, like I said, the latest Peter James book. And then I'm really not sure where I'm going from there. So this has been Rob Cohen for Book Therapy. Find me Twitter, Book Therapy 13 or Rob Cohen 13, robcohen13.com. I'm on Goodreads. Um, find me. I'd love to hear your feedback. And this is Rob Cohen for Book Therapy. Thank you for letting me lie on your couch.